please rise for the reading of God's word. So this uh, is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, one, verses 1 to 11. And the Philistines now mustered their army for the battle and camped between Sokah in Judah and Azkah in Ephesdemim. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out to the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor and carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of the spear was as heavy and as thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer uh, walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Goliath stood and shouted the taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you coming out to fight, he called. I'm the Philistine champion, but you're only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. They say that familiarity breeds contempt. And if that's true, we face an obstacle this morning. In our walk through 1 Samuel, we come today to what is, without a doubt, the most famous story in the Old Testament. The story of David, the shepherd boy, facing off against the Philistine giant, Goliath. It's a story that we're well acquainted with. We've heard it countless times. We've heard the lessons from the story that if God is on our side, we don't have to be afraid. That God helps us to defeat the giants in our lives, like fear and sin and so on. Uh, some years ago, I was at a children's ministry clinic, and I think some others of you were there too. The instructor told this story as an example of how to tell stories to kids with props and characters. And being relatively tall, I got to play Goliath, and I stood on a chair to add height. And when David hit me with a stone, I had to fall. And have you ever fallen to the ground from standing on a chair? It's not comfortable. But when the story was over... The presenter made his point and said, the same God who helped David defeat Goliath is the same God who walks with you onto the school playground tomorrow. And I thought, sounds good, but what if one of these children gets beat up on the playground tomorrow? So I guess God helped David, but he's not interested in me. Even just as a story, it doesn't grip us anymore. The tension of the encounter between David and Goliath doesn't mean much because you know how it ends. David wins. 
We know the story so well that we've lost our ability to let it speak to us, assuming that it has nothing new to say to us. Kellogg's Cornflakes, a few years ago, used an advertising slogan that says, Taste them again for the first time. I'd like to invite us to hear the story again for the first time, to enter into it again, and to let God speak to us again. I said last time that the whole Old Testament points to God's grand narrative that is centered in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that. So 1 Samuel is a part of that narrative. And this story is part of the narrative. So somehow, this story points us to Jesus. So how does it do that? Here's the story. Let's zoom out. The Israelites have been in the land for some 300 years. And as a nation, they have been freed from slavery in Egypt and have been led by Moses to the land of Canaan, which God had promised to give them. And under Joshua, they began the process of conquest, and soon they were fairly well established. But they had a habit of turning their backs on God and worshiping the pagan gods they saw around them. So naturally, when they did this, they no longer experienced God's presence and protection, and so they were attacked and overrun by the enemy. Then... People would cry out to God, and he would raise up a hero in whatever region needed one. People like Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, who would lead them to victory and then govern, and things would be peaceful and at ease, uh, peaceful and stable for a while. And during this period, Israel was somewhat fragmented. The tribes in the south would be worrying about the Moabites, the Philistines, while in the north they had troubles of their own. With the Midianites in the east, the Ammonites, each area had to take care of itself. But over time, one nation rose to prominence in the land and became Israel's greatest threat, the Philistines. The Philistines were a feared and a hated enemy. And the leader in Israel at this time was the judge and prophet Samuel. He was getting old. And there was uncertainty about what would happen after he died. So the people came to him. Came to him. We want a king, they said. Other nations have kings. We want one. They didn't understand that it wasn't the absence of the king that was their problem. It was the fact that they kept ignoring God. God was their king. And if they could just get that, they'd be all right. But they thought that having a king would solve their problems, give them security, strengthen their national identity and unity, and so on. So God gave them what they thought they wanted. So enter Saul. As we heard two weeks ago, Saul was the complete package from all outward uh, outward appearances. The Bible describes Saul as an impressive young man without equal among all the Israelites. Samuel said of him, there is no one else like him. Twice the Bible makes the point of saying that he was a head taller than anyone else. He was more handsome than anyone in all Israel. 
And the first thing Saul does is put together an ad hoc army and stage a dramatic rescue of an Israelite city besieged by an Ammonite army. The people go crazy. The Poles put his approval rating at 100%. He's tall, impressive looking, with leadership ability and military know-how. He's the ideal king from all outward appearances. But as you know, it's not all about outward appearances. And Saul is not the complete package that he seemed to be because in his heart, there is a problem. Saul have a, has a deficit of character. Inside, where it matters most, Saul is more concerned with himself than with God or his people. Saul disobeys God, leads unwisely, is a self-absorbed man who becomes paranoid, violent, ends up committing suicide, but that's not it. He does not have the heart of a king, a heart that pleases God. But someone else does. In the town of Bethlehem lived a man named Jesse with his sons, and God told Samuel, Go see Jesse, for I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So Samuel does what the Lord commands and goes to Bethlehem. And when he gets there, the elders of the town tremble and ask him, Do you come in peace? Now, understand that for Samuel to come to your town was a big deal. Everyone knew that he was God's man, Recognizing, recognized as having authority even over the king. He was the most revered man in all of Israel. So if he makes a special trip, that means that God is on the move. So when he gets there, the elders of the town tremble and ask them, do you come in peace? And Samuel reassures them, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and I want you to join me. And he makes a point of inviting Jesse and his sons. Now, I, I think they knew what Samuel is here to do. Because Jesse has his son parade before Samuel. And Samuel keeps saying, commenting, the Lord hasn't chosen this one. So it's pretty obvious that he's there to choose one of Jesse's sons. And it's clear that they knew it. And it wouldn't take any imagination to figure out that maybe he's anointing the next king. So Jesse's sons probably feel like they're on a reality TV show. Seven contestants, one of whom will be chosen to be the next king. So one by one, they come and stand before Samuel, starting with the oldest, Eliab. Eliab is a good-looking guy. He carries himself well, confident, Confidently, he's the kind of guy that makes an immediate impression. He looks every inch the king. And Samuel's first thought is, oh, this has got to be the guy. But Samuel hears the unmistakable word of God, which Samuel knew so well. And God's voice checks Samuel and says, Do not consider his appearance or the height of his stature, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Why is that 
a lesson that we have so much difficulty in learning. We even judge ourselves by external things, our job, our family. I'm a good Christian because I'm busy in the church. And we don't pay attention to our hearts, our character, our inner life. And yet God is far more interested in our hearts than in our outward appearances. God is far more concerned with who you are than with what you do. And we should be interested in that too. If you are too busy to pay attention to your heart, to cultivate your inner life, then you're too busy. God looks at the heart. And we should too. So Eliab gets voted off the island and stepped away, and Jesse's next son comes forward. And then the third son. And Samuel shakes his head, seven sons of Jesse, and Samuel says of them all, I don't get it. The Lord hasn't chosen these. Like, these are all your sons, right? Well, I mean, there's, a, there's the youngest one. He's tending a sheep somewhere. Get him, says Samuel. So the youngest is sent for. He, too, is a good-looking kid with fine appearance and handsome features. And God says to Samuel, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel takes his horn of anointing oil and anoints, them in the, anoints him in the presence of his brother. And the young man's name was David. So here we have one man, Saul, king of Israel, who is rejected as king by God, and another, David, who is chosen by God to be king. And the difference between the two is that when God looks at David's heart, he sees something that pleases him. Okay, using Samuel's words from earlier, David was a better man than Saul. He was a man after God's own heart. So what is it that God saw when he looked at David? What kind of heart pleases God? Because since God is primarily concerned with the heart, then he's concerned with my heart and with your heart. And so we want to know what God looks for in the heart. When God looked at David's heart, he saw something that made him choose David to rule over God's people, the nation of Israel. So we've seen Saul's heart how it grieved God, how it rendered God, Saul unfit to lead God's people. Now we see David's heart, the heart of a man God can call on to lead his people. So the war with the Philistines is still on, and right now both sides are geared, geared up for battle. Okay? The Philistines have gained the upper hand because we read that they set up their army in Judah on Israelite soil, They've camped on a hill, below them lies a valley, and on the hill up across from them, the Israelite armies, led by Saul, have drawn up their battle lines. And among the Israelite soldiers are David's three oldest brothers. The Israelites have suffered from a general lack of courage against the Philistines for some time. But today, what little courage they managed to cling to 
would vanish like a morning mist because today they see Goliath. It takes a few moments for it to register what they're seeing. Uh, commotion erupts in the Philistine camp. One of their soldiers emerges and strides down the hill into the valley. And as he gets closer and closer, the jaws of the Israelites sag lower and lower. This guy is immense. It's Goliath, the Philistine champion, and he's picking a fight. Like Andre the Giant strolling into a grade 8 Z class. This guy is over 9 feet tall, so 50% taller than any Israelite. On his head, he got a, he's got a bronze helmet. He's wearing a bronze coat of armor that weighs 125 pounds. He's got bronze greaves on his legs. So this guy is covered in metal. If any Israelite soldiers could be transported through our day and be shown a military tank, he'd say, ah, I've seen one of these, these before. His name was Goliath. Goliath carried a spear and the spear tip alone weighs 15 pounds. And as he moved toward the Israelites, the Israelite camp grows deathly silent. And then Goliath issues, bellows a challenge that booms across the valley. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are not you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the reigns of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And behind them, the Philistine army lets out a cheer. And then when no one from the Israelite army steps forward, laughter and catcalls ripple through the Philistine ranks. The effect that Goliath had on Israel is absolutely demoralizing. They don't display, they don't merely display a collective hesitation. The Bible tells us that when they hear Goliath's words, they are dismayed and terrified. And no one volunteers, not even Saul himself, who you remember is taller, a head taller than any Israelite. So a cloud of depression hangs over the Israelite camp. And that evening, Goliath again steps forward and issues his challenge. Then again, the next morning and the next evening, twice a day for a week, two weeks, three weeks, four, five, almost six weeks, twice a day for 40 days, the Israelite army is defied by Goliath. Eighty times their hope takes a body blow. Every day for six weeks, they deflate just a little more. They cower in their tents. And the Philistines almost get used to this daily ritual. And even they stop laughing as they prepare for war. And Saul tries to coax a hero out of the ranks by offering incentive. Whoever kills Goliath 
Guess who married the king's daughter? And this whole family is exempt from taxes. But no takers. And every day the Israelites hunch their shoulders a little more and try to shut out the voice of Goliath. But on the 40th day, someone sees and hears Goliath for the first time. It's David. The shepherd boy from Bethlehem has come to bring his three brothers a care package from home. And you find out how the battle is going. It's not going well. And David finds his brothers. And as he's talking to them, Goliath comes and does his thing and returns to his camp. David, his temperature starts to rise. And more so when he sees that no no one is willing to fight Goliath. And he starts asking around what will be done for the guy who kills Goliath and removes this disgrace from Israel. I mean, who is this, this pagan that he should defy the armies of the living God? His heart is a heart that is, is concerned with, for the honor, honor of God. His heart is a heart that is concerned with the honor of God. And David starts dropping hints that if no one else will do it, then he's thinking about fighting Goliath himself. So word of David comes to Saul, and David is sent for. And I love what David says to Saul. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. I'll go fight him. So this teenager says, Tell your trained fighters not to worry. I'll fight. So here too is David's heart, heart of courage. Courage is being able to stand for what is right when no one else will. Willing to put his life on the line. See, God has sworn to give the land to Israel, but the Philistines were starting to take the land. And David was the only one willing to plant his foot firmly on the ground and say, No, in the name of God, I will stand against you alone if need be. David showed incredible courage. So Saul says, You can't take Goliath. You're only a boy. And David answers, as a shepherd, I had to kill a lion and a bear when the sheep were threatened. The Lord who helped me then can certainly give me victory over the Philistine. Okay? David's heart is a heart of trust. He doesn't, doesn't trust in armor, but in God. God will, not can, but will, Give me the victory, he says. So Saul tries to lend David his armor, and David tries it on, but rejects it. We serve the Lord most effectively when we are ourselves. We serve least effectively when we're trying to copy someone else. Some are ten-talent Christians, some are five, some of us are one-talent Christians, And we need to serve with our one talent and be content with that. I don't need to be Henry Shore at Center Street. You don't have to be one of the 12 apostles or Paul. You don't have 
have to act like anyone else in this church or any other church. God made you, you. He wants to use you. Where you are, who you are. Other people's armor does not fit. God wants you. And so unarmed, David takes his sling, grabs five stones, and goes to face Goliath. And when Goliath sees him, he is incensed. You little punk, he yells. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? This is your best man? Come to me and I will tear you apart. And he curses David in the name of his gods. And even the Philistines kind of come out to watch this new development. And I don't think there is any doubt in the mind of anyone watching from either side that David's best option is to scurry back up the hill to the relative safely of the Israelite tents and beyond home to Bethlehem. But he doesn't. Instead, with the passion of one who loves God and the assurance of one who knows God, he answers Goliath, and his words have power. I love this piece. This is better than any movie pep talk. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there was a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Yes, David. See David's heart, a young boy armed with a sling, facing a metal-bound warrior nine feet tall, but he doesn't lose sight of what, is, what this is about, is about God and his honor. So when David and Goliath close for combat, it isn't the giant warrior who is victorious. David says the stone is in a sling, spins a sling over his head, releases it with deadly precision. The stone is like a bullet, straight, fast. The rock strikes Goliath on the forehead, crushing it, sinking into it. And as the Philistines watch in disbelief, Goliath sinks to his knees, falls forward on his face, dead. And David runs forward, and with Goliath's own sword cuts off Goliath's head and holds it up. And there's a deathly silent pause. And then the Philistine army starts to scatter in, in retreat. It takes a second for Israel to realize what is happening. But when they do, they grab their weapons with a shout and pursue the Philistines. Israel won a crushing victory that day. And they won because David's heart was passionate about God's honor above all. He had the courage to stand for God. He trusted that God, not his sling, but God would give the victory. 
And later, as king, David would say, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of our God. David was a man after God's own heart. David had the kind of heart that God looks for in his people. Now, fast forward about 3,000 years. Because this is not just a cool Old Testament story with no real relevance to us. There's truth here that means something to us in our day. Is it just that David was able to kill Goliath with God's help? So we too can face the giants, giants of fear or temptation or unhealthy self-esteem and slay them with God's help? Or is it truth that we must have hearts like David, hearts concerned with the, honor, honor, uh, with the honor of God? But aren't those things just exhortations to try harder? Job trusted God in suffering, so you should trust God in suffering too. Joseph was patient, so you should be patient too. Jesus prayed, and if Jesus needed to pray, how much more should you pray? And you should have a heart like David. Face your giants. But isn't this just the Bible's way of saying, why can't you be more like your brother? It's hard to trust God in suffering, hard to be like Job. Unlike Joseph, I'm often impatient, and I really struggle in prayer. So I guess I'm not a good Christian. I'll never measure up to my brother. And to many people, that's what the Bible is. One long exhortation to measure up. And since we can't measure up, after all, we fall short of the glory of God. So when are we good enough? Then to read through the Bible in a year is to take a 12-month course in depression. Is that what the Bible is for? But wait a second. Didn't, didn't Jesus say the whole Old Testament pointed to him? That every part of the Bible points to God's redemption of the lost humanity, a humanity that, that can't possibly measure up, a redemption story that has Jesus at the center as a main character, so if that's true, then how does that work out in this story? It's been said that one way to enter into a Bible story is to put yourself in the Bible story, to identify with a character and to experience the event from his or her perspective. Okay, well, fair enough. I think that is a good way to have the stories come to life. So in this story... Who is it appropriate that we identify ourselves with? With David? I think we often do that. Can we be like David? Are we the hero of this story? Are we Goliath? Heaven forbid. Could it be that we are more like the soldier, part of the army of Israel, facing an enemy that they couldn't possibly overcome, Fearful, dismayed, impotent, 
needing a champion to face them on their behalf, the champion who would prove to be their only hope. Doesn't that sound more like us? And isn't the role that David plays a lot more like the role that Jesus plays? When faced with our greatest enemy, with sin and death and hell, maybe instead of rushing to meet him in battle, we find ourselves dismayed and terrified. And understandably so, we're impotent in, against such an enemy. And they are enemies. Sin is an enemy. It always seems to get the upper hand, doesn't it? Just a few minutes before I wrote these words, I had a conversation with someone about cancer. Cancer is a scary word. Right now, my oldest sister is having a very rough time recovering from surgery, and she's facing some sort of treatment for cancer. Cancer has a way of coming back. Maybe years later, sin is like cancer. It has a way of coming back. It's an enemy. Death is an enemy. They say that there is two things that are inevitable, death and taxes. Well, despite what it feels like, only one of them is inevitable. Apparently, when he saw his army about a million pass by, Xerxes, king of Persia, wept. And when asked why, he said this, There came upon me a sudden pity when I thought of his shortness of man's life and considered that oh, and consider that of all this host so numerous as it is not one will be alive when a hundred years have gone by death is an enemy hell is an enemy because we all sin hell is everyone's destiny a just god punishes sin if he didn't he wouldn't be just and if he's not just he wouldn't be perfect so hell is down the road for each one of us because we all die and after death comes the judgment. Sin, death, hell, enemies. We need a champion. Someone after God's own heart. Someone who will put their foot down and say to the enemy, your power ends here. See, this story of David and Goliath doesn't point to us at all. It points to Jesus. He is the hero born in Bethlehem. After being challenged by the devil for 40 days, he became the giant killer. He conquered sin, conquered sin's power by bearing God's judgment for us by dying on the cross. He conquered death's power over us by rising from the dead, never to die again. And he promises to take all those who are in Jesus into life with him. Death does not win. Death does not have the final word. And he conquered hell by rescuing us from sin and therefore from the punishment for sin. And just as David became the king of the army that he fought for, so Jesus has become king of those he rescued, you, me. This story of David and Goliath plays out in miniature the story of God's great plan of redemption in Jesus. It's a story 
about a people doomed to defeat who get rescued by a man after God's own heart, a man concerned with the honor of God. Jesus is our champion. It's not a story dependent on the condition of our hearts, but on the sufficiency of Jesus and the grace of God. It's the story of your redemption and mine. It's a story we all know, but hear it again for the first time. It's a story worth telling and retelling until it becomes the best-known story of all. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're so glad that you recognize that we need a champion and you send your son to die for us. Thank you that he is a giant killer. Thank you that he faced the enemy on our behalf. And thank you, thank you, thank you that he won the battle. And because of that, we share the victory and we have life. Jesus, we praise you. We thank you. We affirm your might and your power that nothing can stand against. We thank you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.